0: What does this mean for democracy in in South Asia and in the sort of South Southeast Asia sphere? Because we've seen a, a rapid decrease in democratization or democratic backsliding. Poland seems to be a, a bit of a positive opposite story to that.
1: Yeah, I would argue that 2023 has not been kind to democracy in South Asia. I mean, we've seen many months of crackdowns on the opposition in Bangladesh, but also in Pakistan. Meanwhile, in India, uh, trends of recent years have continued, continue there with um, repression.
0: This is The Global Gambit. Welcome back, everybody. So as we speak, uh, there is a upcoming election in Bangladesh. January 7th, we'll be seeing some very, very important uh, elections for the country. Bangladesh is not a country that is often in the international media, but uh, it is important for its due location, not to mention the civil war in Myanmar, and generally sort of broader geopolitical tensions between, say, the Chinese and Indians. Um, As we speak, there are growing social and political unrests surrounding the way that the run-up to the election is being conducted, uh, particularly with the opposition party known as the BMP, uh, which has recently called for a non-cooperation agreement because of a series of blockades and other impediments that the incumbent government have put, mainly because there is a demand for the uh, incumbent government to step aside to allow for a caretaker government uh, during this uh, transitionatory phase in case there is a a shift in power. Now, joining me to talk about this, and this is part one of a three-part quick dive we're going to have, is Michael Kugelman. Michael Kugelman is an expert on many things South Asia, including Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and is the Foreign Policy magazine's um, editor of the Southern Asian Brief. So I highly recommend you check him out uh, to um, Bangladesh what is the situation as it stands? Uh, why is there not much media attention about this? And and how serious could this be for the upcoming election in January?
1: Well, uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be back here uh, with you. Um, I, I would argue that um, the election is, is starting to get uh, a fair amount of uh, media attention. I think that elections, uh, generally speaking, tend to get that type of media attention they deserve. But I would right. argue that at least from a from a from a washington perspective or from a western perspective bangladesh unfortunately has not received the attention that i think it deserves as a strategically significant uh, state um, and we can get into that but um yeah it's uh it's it's very soon uh it's just a few weeks away the election and you know i would argue that um there's actually uh a lot there's not much to discuss when it comes to the election in terms of the expected outcomes because there's not that much uncertainty at this point um the the main opposition the bnp uh has uh, formally announced its decision to boycott the polls uh which it's done before not the previous election but two elections ago it boycotted so that means that you're going to have the ruling Awami League essentially running against itself. Uh, there will be other parties uh, running against the Awami League in the elections, but none of them are as uh, significant uh, as the BNP in terms of capacity to mount a, uh, a, a substantive challenge to the Awami League. So that suggests to me that um, the BNP, pardon me, the Awami League will, will return to power uh, for what would be a fourth consecutive uh, term. And there had been a lot of uncertainty about what would happen when it wasn't clear if the BNP was going to run or not. And uh, uh, the BNP had been uh, making demands for quite some time that the Awami League reinstate a a caretaker clause, which previously had been a part of the Constitution, which essentially stipulates that um, uh, government uh, government stepped down several months before the election to allow uh, for a um, an apolitical technocratic administ- administration to come in and oversee the elections. The reason why the BNP has wanted that clause reinstated is that it 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 believes that there's no way you could have a free and fair election in Bangladesh so long as the current government um, is in power because it believes that it would ensure that the elections are rigged and. You know, I'll say on this is that um, it was when the Awami the League was in power some years ago that the Supreme Court struck down the caretaker uh, clause and you know, the BNP and its supporters think that it never should have been struck down and needs to come back. And without it being reinstated, there's no reason for the BNP to participate in what it believes to be a, uh, an illegitimate um, election uh, and a completely illegitimate uh, electoral system on the whole. So that's where we stand. It's very likely the Awami League will be back for a fourth straight term.
0: What does this do for the uh, What does this do for the surrounding um, states, namely in the uh, in the immediate vicinity? Right, we've got China, which is struggling economically. India has got its own elections next year. Are they watching the situation in Bangladesh? Also, given the Rohingya situation, the the Thousands upon thousands of humanitarian refugees, asylum seekers that have fled to uh, Bangladesh in the past few years because of the Myanmar crisis and now the the ongoing civil war. Uh, What are the external factors here playing into uh, into the parliamentary elections, do you think? Or it's not that easy to tell right now?
1: Well, it's very clear that uh, the Indian government has a strong stake in an election that brings back the Awami League. Uh, there are very close ties between the Awami League and the ruling BJP in India. I would argue that there are significant uh, ideological convergences uh, between the two. Um, and the the Indian government uh, really believes that um, if the opposition were to come to power, if the BNP were to come to power, that that could pose threats to India's interests because um, New Delhi regards the BNP and its and its its allies, its traditional allies like the Jamaat Islami, views them as um, as Islamist forces that could be potentially destabilizing, and that is not what India wants. So this is not something that the Indian government would put out there. Uh, Publicly, but it clearly wants the Awami League to return. So, assuming the expected outcome plays out, and the Awami League does come back, you know that'll be a good thing from uh, from India's perspective. Now, I think the China factor is important here as well. Uh, China has really expanded its um, infrastructure assistance in Bangladesh, as it has throughout much of South Asia in recent years, through the vehicle of the Belt and Road Initiative. And China has also seen its um, defense ties with Bangladesh uh, increase over the last few years with, with the Awami League in power. So I would argue that the, the Chinese government is also uh, would also be very happy to see the Awami League return. And it was a very interesting. About a year ago, the Chinese ambassador in Dhaka had made some public comments in which he essentially said that, um, you know, China would like to see... Um, Politics play out in a way that the Constitution is upheld, which many viewed as a as a rejection of what the BNP is looking for, which is for the caretaker um, clause to come back, even though it's it's it was struck down some years ago. But I, I would argue that the stakes for China are less high than they are for India, in the sense that China would be perfectly comfortable with a non-Awami League government in power um whereas with India you know for 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 ideological reasons and others they really do not want to see any party other than the Awami League in power so the stakes are high for um for for both countries but especially for India
0: there was an interesting um piece come out by the Atlantic Council also in DC um about sort of different scenarios that could happen pathway one that the ruling party succeeds uh in exhausting the bn2 pathway two, the balp flips some hope for leaders into joining the quote, quote unquote kings parties uh and then part pathway three is that the bal renders the bmp leaderless and disbands it um Are any of these scenarios even remotely possible or it's largely what you think uh, you've described uh, in your previous uh, responses that are going to mainly play out? It's not there's not going to really be any major upsets. It's it's all looking pretty um, uh, predictable and sort of unexciting. Well, I think that
1: the Iwami the League would have a strong interest in uh, wanting to make this election look like it is indeed an inclusive election, even though it's not, uh, even though it will not be. Um, so that could entail trying to empower or encourage some of the other parties um, to um, participate electorally in ways that would suggest uh, just that. But I, I don't know. I mean, again, as I had said earlier. Um, you know the BNP is is the key opposition player. Uh, it has the most cloud. It has the most public support. I would argue of any of the non Awami League parties, any of the opposition parties, should I say? So to me, it's the most likely outcome. I think is the one that I had laid out before, um, where you simply have the Awami League come back. Maybe maybe the next Awami League government would be one that has some some partners that it doesn't have now. I don't know. But uh, I mean, for me, looking at this in a, in a top line, you know, from a top line perspective, you know, we're looking at uh, the incumbents coming back again for a fourth straight term. Uh, and that's a that's a lot of terms uh, in a row, for sure. And uh, clearly for a for a for an opposition that's already so unhappy about uh, how things look politically, you know, you wonder what the implications will be for that party and how they choose to uh, respond after an election that they will view as uh, wholly illegitimate.
0: Last question on Bangladesh, then. So, what does this mean for democracy in in South Asia, and in, in the sort of South Southeast Asia sphere? Because We've seen a uh, a rapid decrease in democratization or democratic backsliding. Poland seems to be a, a bit of a positive opposite story to that. But in Southeast Asia, you know, ASEAN and, and, and sort of this whole thing. Again, I'm thinking Myanmar, uh, democracies on in, in a decline. What would this do for that in the region? Because I, I feel like I wouldn't say it's, Bangladesh has been a bastion of democracy, but it's, it's been a sort of a positive, hopeful, ongoing story. And this seems to be undermining all that.
1: Yeah, I would argue that 2023 has not been kind uh, to democracy in South Asia. I mean, we've seen um, uh, many months of crackdowns on the opposition in Bangladesh, but also in Pakistan, which I know we'll get to. Uh, Meanwhile, in India, uh, trends of recent years have continued there with um, repression, crackdowns on dissent and opposition there. And of course, as we all know, In recent months, we've seen both Canada and the U.S. accusing India of um, uh, perpetrating transnational uh, repression. Afghanistan, you know, we know that the Taliban uh, are, are in power there and they did not relent from their the policies that they not surprisingly put in place since they came back to power. And that includes not relenting on their bans on most girls education. Uh, they, in fact, increased bans on women's unemployment. So this is not very good uh, at all. But in terms of Bangladesh, indeed, I think that for quite some time, Bangladesh has earned an, a reputation as a uh, as a uh, well-performing uh, uh Uh, democracy, for sure, a moderate Islamic uh, state. And um, I think that what's happened, not just the last few months, but really the last few years, have raised concerns that Bangladesh is close to becoming something that could be described as a one-party state, not formally, but in terms of how things actually look with power asymmetries and power dynamics. Again, I mean, the Awami League has been in power since 2009. It's likely going to return. Uh, the opposition had an opportunity to contest this election and chose not to, but it did that because it felt that um, the odds were stacked against it. Um, and this is this is not good for, um, for democracy at all, uh, indeed. But again, I would argue that what we're seeing in Bangladesh is reflective of what we're seeing across the region. And indeed, as you noted, uh, across the world as well, including in many countries in the West.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so... Pakistan Pakistan is a country that has been facing many different uh, struggles in the past year um, former Prime Minister Imran Khan has continued to face uh, persecution um, and has been using AI as far as I can tell to still get his voice out there his message across and as we speak this uh, this week uh, the past week the um, the chief uh, of the military I believe was visiting DC from Pakistan um, to get a sense of sort of pakistani u.s relations this is actually an article written by uh michael uh relatively recently for foreign policy so michael i guess just jumping into what is the situation with pakistan uh, right now uh politically speaking uh, and and could you give us a, a brief overview of of how you think things are and how things could be going into the uh next uh, next few months as we enter 2024
1: yeah, I would argue that uh, on on many levels, the uh, situation in Pakistan is, is similar to Bangladesh's, uh, you know, from a from a from a basic uh, political lens. Right. I mean, you have um, opposition parties and especially a, a main opposition party that has really struggled and has faced uh, significant crackdowns. So, you know, the Imran Khan, a very popular leader of the main opposition party, PTI, he's been in jail uh, for for a number of months. Other top leaders of his party have been uh, put in jail or they've been pressured to uh, switch parties or step down from politics. And that pressure comes from the from the military. Uh, Hundreds, possibly thousands of supporters of PTI have been arrested and remain in jail for simply staging protests, though some of the some of the protests uh, turned violent uh, earlier this year. Uh, and yet, it has continued to have the capacity to mobilize. Uh, there have been some pretty large rallies held by PTI in um, in recent weeks, particularly in the province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Um, again, this is very much like the BNP in in Bangladesh, but you know there are some differences. Actually, there are quite a few differences. One is that this is ha- what's happening in Pakistan with this political situation. It's playing out against a backdrop of other big crises, such as a really severe economic. Uh, uh, crisis as well as a um resurgence of terrorism bangladesh is not dealing with those types of problems bangladesh's economy is much more stable than pakistan's though it has suffered some some uh some bumps in recent months particularly inflation and so on so pakistan is dealing with uh, multiple crises um the, the current situation in Pakistan is much more complex and murky than the situation in Bangladesh in that we don't know what is going to happen when elections happen. We also don't know for sure if the elections will indeed happen when they're scheduled to take place, which at this point is February 8th. Um, you know, the, I imagine they will take place, but there has been some buzz and some speculation that maybe uh, certain factors, whether you're talking about weather conditions or security threats, uh, or other factors could prompt the elections to be delayed by a few weeks or a few months, and those that believe that to be the case think that perhaps the uh, the powers that be, which is theoretically the caretaker government in power, but in reality is, is the military establishment, would like some more time so to speak to to hope that um, conditions play out electorally that would make it more difficult for the PTI to come back to power uh, the army the army chief. Or should I say the top army leadership uh, has this uh, really nasty uh, spat vendetta going on with uh, with Imran Khan for reasons that we've talked about in the past. Clearly, they don't want him to come back to power. He really can't because he's in jail. Uh, But um, I I think the the question is, would they be willing to have PTI return? And I don't know. That that could be tough. So what does that mean? So Nawaz Sharif, uh, a name that will be familiar to to many, a former prime minister, he'd been in exile, self-exile in London for several years. He returned um, in October to contest elections. He has all these corruption charges against him. He was disqualified from public office um, some years ago that ended his term as premier. He came back, and once he came back, all of a sudden he started getting a lot of legal relief uh, the courts were um uh giving him bail in certain cases he was getting a lot of legal relief and i think that's a reflection that he is now a preferred candidate of the of the establishment so he's a he's a favorite um you know likely next prime minister but not necessarily um you know his party had been a leading member of the coalition in the previous government which was quite unpopular because of its inability to reign to rein in the economy so I think that uh, it would be very um, inaccurate to suggest that uh, his party is going to sweep the election, even if it's getting backing from from the army. But at the same time, PTI, which is committed to running, despite the challenges it'll face, it's going to have a lot of challenges running um, just because of the crackdowns I mentioned and so many other factors. So we don't know what's gonna happen, but. I imagine there's a good chance that whatever happens, you will not have any one party win an outright majority, and I think in all likelihood we'll see some type of coalition, perhaps a weak and fractious coalition that uh, that takes office uh um in
0: the coming months um, but Michael, just um turning to the uh the session with um uh Afghanistan as well, we had this uh, i think quite uh extraordinary uh decision to, what, expel one and a half, 1.7 million Afghans from Pakistan in early November. Um, what's what's that done to relations between Pakistan and the Taliban? Uh, what's the general sentiment with that at the moment? Has, has, has it happened fully or is it still something that's in the process? Could you take us through a little bit that situation and how that's playing into the um, Pakistan political situation?
1: Yeah, this is a huge story, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. It's not getting the global media attention it deserves. It's, I would argue, one of the biggest humanitarian crises today. So, yes, uh, the decision has been implemented, and the government in Pakistan had been hinting for a number of weeks that it was going to uh, to do so. Uh, so November 1st, I believe, was the day when the decision was implemented. Again, uh, deporting uh, any uh, undocumented uh, immigrant, which, of course, includes um several million Afghan refugees. But at the end of the day, it's mainly Afghans that are affected by this, even though there could be some other others as well. So, yes, it is happening. And the official line from the uh, from the Pakistanis is that, um, you know, for the most part, no one is being deported uh, against their will and that most people that have left and we're talking about 400, 450,000 Afghans, I believe, that have left to this point. According to the Pakistani government, they've returned voluntarily. But there has been a lot of uh, media coverage indicating that that's not true at all, that you've had many uh, Afghans that have been forced to um, to leave. And I think that from a U.S. perspective, the biggest concern is all of those Afghans. Uh, and there were quite a few, several hundred thousand that fled Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover, they fled to Pakistan, and these are Afghans that had worked with the U.S. military or the U.S. government and were eligible for uh, these special immigration visas that were meant to get them to the United States to seek asylum. But um, because of delays in the U.S. bureaucratic delays, they hadn't been a- many hadn't been able to get out. They were waiting in Pakistan, hoping that they'd be able to get to the U.S. So the concern for for Washington is that these some of these Afghans will be. Uh, sent back to Afghanistan, where they would face threats to their lives. Now, Pakistani officials, again, uh, ensure that that's not going to happen. Everything will be fine. But uh, I'm quite confident that, that, you know, you'd mentioned that the Pakistani army chief is in, uh, has been in the U.S., which is true. I'm quite confident that that probably was one of the top agenda points from the U.S. perspective, especially when he met with uh, security officials here. Uh, that, that issue is big. So in terms of what's going on here, very briefly, um, you know, the the position that the Pakistani state has given, and you hear this justification given publicly and privately, is that it's meant to, uh, it's a security uh, measure, essentially, uh, that it's meant to strengthen security in Pakistan. And Pakistani officials will say that uh, many of the recent terrorist attacks in Pakistan, most of them carried out by the Pakistani Taliban, a Pakistani terror group based in Afghanistan, Pakistani officials will say that uh, many of those attacks were carried out by Afghan nationals. My view is that this is a terrible case of scapegoating. Yes, there could well be Afghan terrorists uh, that, uh, that participated that carried out some of these attacks, but we're talking about several million Afghans in Pakistan, the vast majority of them not involved in terrorism, or drug trade, or, or any of the other things that uh, uh, some Pakistani officials have accused them of being involved with. My sense is that a bigger factor here is geopolitical, that the, the Pakistanis are trying to essentially pressure the Taliban in Afghanistan to do more to address Pakistan's concerns about terrorism. So Pakistan believes that the Taliban have not been willing to curb the presence of anti-Pakistan terrorists in Afghanistan, and these are mainly the Pakistani Taliban. And it's true that the Taliban haven't done very much about that. The Pakistani Taliban are closely allied with the Taliban in Afghanistan. The Taliban in Afghanistan they rarely, if ever, turn against their militant allies. So I think that there could be a a, this could be a case of Pakistan trying to use leverage to get to pressure the Taliban to do more about this uh, concern um, about terrorism. Again, Pakistani officials reject this. They say, "No, we would never use." Uh, refugees marginalized communities as leverage, but you know the timing of it is very striking right It was implemented the decision was implemented at a moment when other Pakistani attempts to try to deal with this terrorism problem have not been uh, have not been successful uh, so yeah I think that's a big part of the story.
0: The one thing that I found interesting about that is that the Pakistani government has likened their actions over the Afghan expulsions as the same as the British trying to do with their Rwanda policy. So for listeners, the British want to try and export um, or expel, dip or any irregular migrants from the UK coming over by the naval means. I, 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 there was a report in the Telegraph I saw about two, three days ago, which is very interesting. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if that will <laughs> legitimize it anymore. Um, the last thing actually was that yesterday watching the UN Uh, the General Assembly adopted a Pakistani-sponsored resolution on, quote, the universal realization of the right of the people to self-determination. I don't know if you saw this, Michael, but um, amidst all the flurry of work to try and get a uh, Palestinian-Gaza resolution, there has been this quite uh, important uh, sort of one pushed on on self-determination. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Well, I mean, uh, as you know, uh, the Pakistani army chief during his visit to the U.S. met with the U.N. secretary general uh, several days ago, I believe on Friday or sometime around then. And um, I think that um, for the army chief and for so many uh, senior leaders in Pakistan, there's a view that uh, the U.N. is one of the, the only major prominent global forums that is willing to give serious attention to the issue of Kashmir. And particularly willing to give attention to Pakistan's perspective on the issue um, of of Kashmir. So when it comes to issues of self determination and things like that, you know, I immediately think of what Pakistan is thinking about in the context of Kashmir. Pakistan has Pakistani officials have long linked the issue of Kashmir to the issue of Palestine. Um, you know, we've heard that uh, we, we've heard that link made many times. And this is one reason why uh, the Pakistani position on uh, Israel Palestine is such that they'll they'll never be willing to recognize the uh, the state of Israel until the the Palestinian issue is resolved, presumably with a you know with a with a separate state for the for the Palestinians. Anyway, so I don't know the full context of this what you this resolution that you just referred to before. But when you talk about self determination, I'm sure that if Pakistan had had a role in that, they must have been thinking to some extent of the issue of, of Kashmir, which of course is, is such a critical issue uh, for Pakistan.
0: Um, and I, I think that is something that we will, I'd love to get you together with maybe a couple of other colleagues to, to have a deeper dive into Kashmir as we enter 2024 into the future. Um, 2023 has been a big year for India and it's been a big year for American Indian relations, interests, engagement, uh, be it from. Having to navigate a challenging situation around uh, supposed assassination attempts, extraterritorial assassination attempts in Canada, uh, potentially in the United States, to counterbalancing against China, to trying to find workarounds when it comes to climate change, and of course now the uh, Israel-Pakistan-Palestinian situation, and the impact of that on india's new silk road uh, uh, efforts how would you look back at india in 2023 I mean, there's illustrations that they're they're growing in confidence geopolitically and on the international stage vis-a-vis their foreign policy uh because of things that we'll come to in a minute but what's your what's your take on the indian uh, geopolitical sense um after this year
1: yeah it was it was definitely a big year for india particularly geopolitically and i think that given that india has really become uh a a significant uh, global power, in my view. Every year is going to be a big year uh, geopolitically. And yeah, this year was no exception. You know, India came into this year uh, amid predictions that it was going to supplant uh, China as the most populous country in the world, which it did, I believe. Uh, And its economy became, I believe, the fifth uh, fastest growing economy, uh, the fifth largest economy in the world. And it has one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Uh, So there's that as the backdrop. But yeah, I think that what really stands, about, stands out about this year for India geopolitically is that it held the, <coughs> pardon me, it held the G20 presidency, which is, you know, just part of the rotating system within the G20. It was India's turn to, uh, to play that role. But it's something that India really made a big deal out of. Um, and it made it a big part of its broader foreign policy. I'd argue it made it a big part of its domestic politics as well. And, you know, the idea here was for India to show just how, significant a global player it can be in its own unique way by, for example, serving as a bridge between the the rich countries and the global south. Uh, And indeed, during its year as G20 chief, it um, made a lot of efforts to get the G20 countries to focus on addressing the biggest economic challenges that disproportionately impact the poorest countries in the world. Uh, it also was successful in bringing in a key global South entity as a new member of the G20, that being the African Union. So I think that the G20 um, presidency was w- was really significant. It helped Modi. It helped the Indian government uh, project itself to the world as a um, as a significant global player. And then there were other successes too. I mean, the lunar landing was a really big deal. Um, you know, as you know, India became. of a very small club of countries that have successfully had soft landings on the moon and i believe it's the only country to have had a soft landing on the south pole uh, of the moon so this was something that you know obviously showcased india's scientific and technological prowess that's a really big deal as well again it was politicized by by the government but one would expect that um but you know very briefly you know we've seen as i think i mentioned earlier India faced some really serious allegations from key Western partners, Canada and the U.S., that it was uh, uh, attempting, in one case successfully and the other unsuccessfully, uh, extrajudicial killings. And you know that is something that I think will pose a, a bit of a diplomatic challenge for India going into uh, next year. Even though, on the whole, the international community, particularly the West, has been willing to overlook. Um, it 's uh some of these these repressive uh, policies and tactics, but these are pre- these are pretty serious charges as as you know so that 's that I think has put a bit of a damper on this big geopolitical year for india and the other point i 'll make is that India will no longer be the g twenty chief in fact, it already turned over the g twenty presidency to Brazil a few weeks ago, so it 's not going to be able to to leverage that uh, anymore and I think a big question is will it continue to focus on those same priorities that it was carrying out? Uh, with the assistance of the G20 chairship. To this idea of serving as a bridge and a leader, a bridge between the, the the developed world and the developing world, a voice of the global south, it really wants to do that. But will it be able to do that as easily if it doesn't enjoy that uh, very prominent perch atop the G20.
0: No, 100%. I, I want to come back to an interview that Modi had with the Financial Times at the time of recording this morning. He touched upon the extraterritorial ter- ter- um, assassinations, which I want to focus on right now but he did talk about the role of multilateralism and sort of i think implicit references to china and definitely more explicit uh indication that america is the way that india wants to go not you know allies to that extent but definitely want to to align more with the us than say china um but um you wrote a very interesting article uh a couple months back about the uh situation between the assassinations and we've had some uh good conversations about it on the channel as well people you can find it on your screen now what do you what do you think that the uh the situation does do for the 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 cohesion and stability of u.s indo relations specifically because the point i make in in the other conversation with a, a friend of mine is that america's not going to risk its geopolitical long-term strategical interests over the specific uh, i don't know questionable and human rights actions of india in the case of canada right it's it, it canada is a five eyes member but i still feel that the americans may try to sort of deal with this situation softly tacitly covertly um instead of making a public uh, dilemma out of it, uh, because otherwise that will alienate China and undermine um, American interests. Do you disagree with that sentiment or or, or you think it is?
1: Anyway, um, yeah, I do agree with you. Uh, the US-India relationship will be fine, uh, though it is, it is impacted in ways that it has not been for quite some time. And I think that this is a relationship that's been spoiled on many levels, because over the last few years, yeah, there have been some bumps here and there. Uh, but there hasn't really been a significant crisis. I think you'd have to go back um, uh, exactly a decade. In fact, um, in late 2013, there was a pretty significant crisis between the US and India when uh, a senior Indian consular official in New York uh, City was arrested, uh, treated poorly in detention, and it caused all kinds of problems for the relationship. Hasn't been, you know, there really hasn't been many crises since then. But um, so this is this is significant, and I think that the biggest reason why the relationship is impacted in a negative way, and then I'll get into why it's ultimately going to be okay, is that we're talking about unprecedented uh, developments here. We're talking about uncharted territory. Has there ever been a case where a U.S. government has accused a close partner of being complicit in a in an extrajudicial killing on U.S. soil? This is very unusual, and I'm not sure if this has ever happened and i think that for those us officials that for so long have been so enthused and and focused passionate about moving this very important relationship forward i think it's a it's a shock to the system to know that india has or if the if the indictment uh is true that india has indeed that an indian government official an extrajudicial killing on us soil it's pretty it's a big shock to the system and you know there's a lot of trust in the relationship a whole lot of trust but If you look at how the relationship has progressed, um, you know, because of that trust, you're seeing a lot more technology transfers, a lot more intelligence sharing than you ever have before, I think. And that entails a lot of trust. So I think that for those U.S. officials involved in those policies, you know, I think there's going to be a bit of a sort of a, um, you know, a little bit of anxiety thinking about, gee, we're we're doing this with a country that may well have done this to us. So that's why I think the relationship will be impacted. Uh, But ultimately, I think that the relationship will sail through, very briefly, three reasons why. One is just the the nature of the relationship itself. It's hardwired to withstand shocks. Uh, You know, for for about two decades, the relationship has experienced exponential growth. You have deep levels of cooperation across so many different areas. Very importantly, you have regular high-level dialogues that take place, and that allows the two sides to discuss issues they don't agree on, and that helps build trust as well. So it's, it's hardwired to withstand shocks, and it survived that, uh, that crisis I mentioned, you know, about a decade ago, known as the Cobra Gade affair. Second reason why the relationship will be okay is what you had alluded to before. The strategic imperatives are very strong, and I would argue from a U.S. perspective, they're really unassailable, that, uh, you know, the, the U.S. has concluded that it really needs a partner in South Asia. To help it counter china and india is the most logical choice by far not just because of its location its size its strength its economy and so on but also that unlike any other country in south asia it has its own long-standing competition uh with um with china and uh, you know there has been some debate in washington in recent months that since india is not an ally since it refuses to participate in the alliance system it's not a worthwhile partner but, you know, one could push back and say, well, look, India has showed that it's actually can be a net security provider in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's about to ship a, a supply of Brahmos missiles to the Philippines. Uh, this has not been in the news that much, but that's pretty significant. And also, I think in Washington, there's a view that India can push back against China through non-military means, such as potentially with its booming tech sector. So, so I think that the strategic imperatives for partnership are so strong that uh, no one in Washington, or very few officials in Washington, would want to let the serious allegations get in the way of that. Final point: why the relationship will survive, and this is the more provocative one, but I think it's important to mention. uh, Despite what you may hear in U.S. public messaging, it does not let considerations about values and morals and democracy and so on shape its choices as strategic partners. Right? It's it's all it's for so long it's had many. Strategic partners that are not democracies that are repressive, right? You go back to the the Cold War when you had these these brutal right wing democracy, uh, pardon me, brutal right wing dictatorships uh, that were anti communist. Um, They were they partnered with the U.S. And then if you look at countries today, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, I would argue Israel as well. These are close partners of the U.S. Strategic partners. They're not known for not being repressive or, or brutal. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the U.S. makes its decisions about strategic partners through matters of interest. No surprise to anyone, but I think it's worth mentioning. So, yeah. Bottom line is, I think that the relationship will be okay. It has been scarred, and those trust factors I mentioned will be will be uh, are are significant and real, particularly when it comes to how individual U.S. officials perceive the relationship with India. But on the whole, the relationship will
0: be all right. Yeah, I largely agree. I think that the um, relationship is is I don't say simple to understand, but like for me it's it's a case of the Americans have tried to pull India closer for years, for decades, and it's never really worked. Strategical autonomy is something the Indians are very proud of and prioritize and, and do very well. But um there is shifts because of the push factors, namely I think the Chinese belligerency um and the Wolf Warrior diplomacy. Although we've had uh people on from um different locations i've had uh, we had um, ken Moriassi, the uh, one of the diplomatic correspondents for the nika asia publication and he was saying about there is a sentiment in tokyo at least that there's a shift in chinese foreign policy uh, when it comes to how president Xi is seeking to manage things and you've alluded to it there the overtaking of the most populous country the slowdown in chinese outputs the uh, unwillingness to publish youth employment data and just generally economic metrics um, of the of the Chinese. So I was just wondering, what do you see the Indian Sino relations looking like right now? Pretty pretty bad, non-existent, as bad as they could get. <laughs> Just in in the context of the West, I know you're not speaking for the Chinese, but as a Western analyst looking at the two and how their dynamics are playing out vis-a-vis the United States, what do you think is going on in in that?
1: Well, the main baseline point of analysis is that um, the relationship between India and China change in a big way in 2020, when they, when they had this uh, deadly border clash in Ladakh, which was the deadliest um, clash between the two countries since they went to war in 1962. And, you know, there's been regular dialogue between the two militaries to try to address this ongoing border crisis and, and the fact that China, in India's view, continues to be a threat, staging provocations, uh, and so on. So there's that. But, um, you know, it's it's in a very it certainly is in a very difficult uh, spot. And I think that it's gotten to the point where India now views China, not Pakistan, as its biggest strategic concern, as its biggest strategic uh, threat. It believes that it can manage any any security risks emanating from Pakistan, which in India's view revolve around uh, state uh, state sponsored uh, terrorism in in Pakistan. Uh, you know, anti-India terrorist groups based in and uh, and sponsored by the Pakistani state. It feels that it could manage that, but with China, it's it's very different. You know, it views a country that is uh, openly provoking it on the border, and uh, you know this is something that India has una- been unable to deter. And Indian officials would not acknowledge this publicly. But uh, let's face it: there's good in- there's good evidence, including satellite uh, data indicating that China continue to, in some cases, be hunkered down on territory that India regards as its own, a remnant of that 2020 clash. So this is a big concern for, for India. and But it's not only the border issue. India worries about um, China's increasing uh, naval power. It really worries about how China has been able to develop uh, has been able to project naval power in a big way in the Bay of Bengal and in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, you know, the the only known Chinese overseas military base is off is, is off Djibouti, which is not too far from India at the end of the day. India also believes that China has had um, spy vessels uh, circulating around the Andaman Sea, which is of course near Indian Island territories. So for all kinds of reasons, India is very concerned about China's power and its power projection, which it regards as as very dangerous and threatening for its interests. Yes, India's growing India's tensions with China have certainly helped advance U.S.-India uh, partnership. But um, one thing that it has not done is prompt India to be compelled to seek a formal alliance with the United States. You know that is not going to change. And you know you go back to that Ladakh clash in 2020. Right, at, right after that broke out, you had India's external affairs minister, Jai Shankar, say that we will never join the alliance system. Not we're not going to, we will never join it, which I think is an indication of how China feels on these issues. We have seen, though, this uh, U.S.-India partnership, it is helping India um, to to a significant extent. We now know that uh, about a year ago, I believe, um, there was a an attempt by the Chinese to stage a a provocation and incursion onto a territory that India believes to be its own, and the US supplied intelligence to India that helps India preempt that. So that's a nice example of how US-India partnership can help India fend off China, which of course serves the interests of both uh, Washington and New Delhi.
0: So I've got a couple more questions for you, Michael, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But the the second to last one is about uh, some other comments that Modi mentioned in the uh, interview with the Financial Times at the time of recording, which was about this emphasis of multilateralism. Uh, we've seen, I think, 2023, a real peak of Indian multilateralism there. And uh, just wondering what you feel uh, that means for India going into the short to medium term. Uh, and I'll use one specific example, which is that. The ongoing maritime insecurities in the Gulf of Aden with the Houthis, there is the I2U2, which obviously India is, is is a big component of. it. sort of the Western version of the Quad, as, as people seem to try to call it. What do you think about India in this regard? I mean, not specifically just Israel-Palestine, but if you want to touch upon that, I'm curious, but also just India and the multilateralism.
1: Right so these these multi terms are important for India multilateralism multipolarity and I should say minilateralism as well which is which is becoming a big deal um and that's be, you know India supports the idea of anything that's not bipolar it uh, it supports the idea of multiple power centers uh which I think plays to its own uh desire to be an un- non-aligned state where it can navigate relations with different countries and not feel pressured by you know, a powerful small group of countries to align with them, so it supports multipolarity. And one could argue that this might be something that would uh, be detrimental to U.S. interests. Some could suggest that, oh, does this mean India wants to see less U.S. power? Not necessarily, but it's an interesting point. So, you know, this is it's it's an interesting case. And yes, India is a big fan of uh, so many different uh, of these multilateral groupings, and we've seen that it's been willing to participate in quite a few of them that are, in many cases, um, not particularly fond of the West. And I think, again, that reflects India's um, non-aligned strategy. Been a lot of talk about the BRICS over the last year, right? As you know, the BRICS is, has expanded. Uh, it's a group that's historically been dominated by China and Russia. Uh, and of course, South Africa came in uh, most recently, Then uh, India and Brazil are a part of it too. It's expanding, um, and I think that, this has raised concerns that India that, that India is a part of a of a grouping that is uh, anti West, and you have Iran joining, which could make it even more anti West. I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, I don't necessarily think India sees that way, or doesn't definitely doesn't see it that way. India is keen to participate in a variety of multilateral groupings that could enable it to, you know, project influence, give it a seat at the table, so to speak, um, in in these prestigious forums. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is another good example. It's another grouping that's dominated historically by, by China and to a lesser extent Russia. India joined it along with Pakistan uh, some some years back. Again, it's seen as an entity that's meant to serve as an alternative to US-led, West-led um, arrangements, institutions, particularly in terms of economic institutions uh, in, uh, in, in around the world. India is very comfortable in these forums because at the end of the day, it's about pursuing its interests, projecting influence, and it wants to do that in the company of both its Western friends um, and its non-Western friends. But it it prefers to be involved in those multilateral fora that are not hardcore security institutions. Of course, the Quad, the Indo-Pacific Quad, not I2U2, but the Indo-Pacific Quad is a security grouping, but it's not something that operates as an alliance. Uh, that's not the case at all. And in fact, the main focus of the Indo-Pacific Quad, and I would argue of I2U2 as it evolves, is to have countries partnering together commercially and perhaps working together to produce and distribute um, uh, important public goods, whether you're talking about uh, clean energy technologies, um, COVID vaccines, whatever the case may be. So yeah, India's interests are, are served by a more multilateral world and certainly by a more multipolar world. I would argue that it's getting what it wants on multipolarity But not multilateralism because of how sharp, great power competition is across the board. I think that's really militated against the emergence of more multilateralism and more and on the whole, more global cooperation.
0: I'm 100 percent with you on the notion of India not being in the same bucket as China and Russia when it comes to their usage of the BRICS. India wants to be able to participate in whatever it wants. That's what the idea of strategical autonomy is. And and they want to be able, and, and they know that they can get away with that. I I think because they that they are so, I don't know, wanted by so many people, if you know what I mean. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, thing to watch play out if you're a particular sort of IR nerd like myself. So, uh, there was one conversation we had with Ali Wayne of Eurasia Group about this, and he was emphasizing to me that, Um, Yeah, China and Russia may well be the two biggest proponents, but it's India and China that will be seen as the de facto leaders of it because they're the largest, even if, I mean... But that's the problem. BRICS is not unified because China, India, and now you've got Saudi Arabia and Iran. And the bigger it gets, the more well, cumbersome and ineffective it becomes, much like people can whinge about the UN. So it's sort of like, well, is it is going to be as effective as you think it is in the long run? Not saying that the West doesn't have its problems. Well, the last question I have for you, Michael, is you wrote an article relatively recently about uh, the wins of the BJP. Uh, And what this is doing for the opposition. Uh, Obviously, we do have the Congress Party, which is uh, trying to gather momentum still. uh, But as you write in your article, uh, the momentum is is seemingly switching towards that of the BJP in the run up to the big elections. So just wondering if you could break down a little bit how you see the domestic situation in India uh, as we run up to the elections uh, next year.
1: Well, you know, there's, uh, as I think I mentioned at the top, there are five elections in South Asia next year. And I think the one in India has the least amount of intrigue to it um, in the sense that uh, it seems quite clear to me that the BJP will win, uh, return for a third straight term under Modi. Uh, And, you know, the opposition, um, the Congress and other elements of the opposition had enjoyed a fair amount of momentum until relatively recently. Uh, The Congress party won a key election in Karnataka, Southern state in India uh, some months ago, and then uh, the um, there was an announcement of a new alliance uh, between among several dozen Indian opposition parties, and that's a big deal because the opposition in India has been notoriously fractured in, in, in recent years, dominated by the Congress Party. There are others, but there have been uh, a number of, um, of of challenges in in uniting. So there is a new India, a new opposition alliance that went by the acronym of India, which is very symbolic uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, also, we had this year Rahul Gandhi, who had been uh, saddled with all kinds of um, uh, charges, legal charges that, uh, you know, he and his supporters believed to be um, politically manufactured, which if it sounds familiar, it should, because this is what opposition leaders in Bangladesh and Pakistan have been dealing with as well. Um, he was he he, he received um, uh, his jail sentence was uh was basically dropped uh, which essentially meant that he could be back participating in politics running for office and so on but then yeah those three state elections won by the bjp were were critical um only one of those states did the bjp hold power before the elections happened so really significant delivered a big blow to uh to the congress party in particular and i would argue perhaps more importantly delivered a blow to that india opposition alliance just had chosen to wage those election campaigns in those three states by itself it didn't really want to work with other parties in the india uh, alliance and i think that did not go down well with other members of the alliance and i think that there's questions as to whether the the alliance itself could be impacted deleteriously thanks to the outcome of those three elections those bjp victories and the fact that congress didn't appear willing to work in an alliance like uh, context with those other with those other parties but you know, Modi remains very popular. His party remains very popular. Um, I don't think there's enough. I don't think there's enough time for the trend to be reversed. India goes to the polls in April. The elections start in April. They'll run through May. That's just a few months. And I think that, uh, uh, barring something incredibly unforeseen, some type of black swan that neither you or I could even think of, I, I would. I think that we'll see the BJP back and Modi back too.
0: I agree. I, I think that the, um, the situation with Modi is sort of similar to a little bit to Bangladesh, uh, in the sense of we've had a sustained set of people, sustained party in power for a very extended period of time. Uh, and that's going to play out quite significantly, I think. Um, although I did have a very interesting conversation with a gentleman called Gautam who's uh, whose actually interview I've put in the nest above, along with Michael's article uh, about the Importance of Bharat uh, as a name, Bharat, and and also uh, the, the the sort of the way that many Indians look at the Congress Party, uh, and and it's sort of it's overly perhaps Western influence. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you in a future episode. Till then, take care, everyone.